Blog Talk Radio. December 15th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. And here we discuss news, politics, and today a little bit more culture from an individualist perspective. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff, and welcome to those of you who are joining me over in the Blog Talk Radio chat room, those of you who are sticking it out and coming here on a day that is not my normal day. I really appreciate you joining me here. Uh, normally, I'm on Wednesdays, and if you look in my program notes, those of you who are maybe hearing me for the first time here, you don't necessarily know about my program notes, but I put program notes at the blog at don'tletitgo.com before each show. And at the top of the program notes, I have a little video that if you guys have been following me a while, you've been subjected to it before. Um, it's the agility run that I did many years ago back in 2008 at the American Kennel Club's World Team Tryouts with my Perinian Shepherd, Boo. And my Perinian Shepherd, Boo, is now 15, and she's been sick this week, and so that is why I postponed my show. Um, Anyway, if you haven't seen that video, I would like you to just watch it just because I'm proud of it. But, you know, the way I describe my dog agility career with Boo is that we were pretty good dabblers, pretty damn good dabblers in this sport. We have a few highlights of of our career. But let me just back up and explain for people who have no idea what in the world I'm talking about, what is this sport dog agility? So in the sport of dog agility, you have a human and dog team who run together while the dog performs obstacles on an obstacle course. So the human part of the team guides the dog part of the team around the course because the course is one that the dog has never been on before, not that precise course. So all the obstacles that are on the course, the dog is familiar with, the dog has been trained on, the dog knows how to perform the obstacles, but that particular arrangement of obstacles the dog has never seen before until it is on the start line that time that you see. So, you know, for example, this video that I've got over at the blog, the dog, my dog Boo, had never been on that particular course. I, of course, was allowed to plan my, you know, my guiding her around the course. And I had, I think, about eight minutes, maybe 10 max. It depends on the competition, whether you have eight minutes or 10 minutes to walk the course and plan how you're going to guide your dog through the course. And typically I've spent those eight minutes first, you know, walking it slower 
and, you know, just trying to strategize. And then as I got, you know, more comfortable with what my strategy was going to be, then I would start actually running at full speed, you know, a couple times or close to full speed at least so that I could just get a simulation of how I would move my body. Because you, what you have to do is you have to guide the dog. You have to give the dog instructions so that the dog can get as close as possible to top speed doing all these turns and taking this obstacle and that obstacle and everything else. So that's what you do. The, you, if you think about this, so the sport, the reason I loved it so much was it combined, obviously there's physical challenge to it. You're sprinting and, you know, you're having to navigate this course and just, you know, try to be somewhat graceful with it. I'm not so graceful as you see there, but I get, I get the job done. Uh, so, you know, you want to be fast and as graceful as possible. You have to have a really good connection with the dog and you have to be able to convey the instructions in this split second timing. So it's a physical challenge combined with this mental challenge as well, a a physical coordination challenge. Uh, And like, you know, like I said, there's this connection with the dog aspect because, you know, the dog is your partner. So when you're watching these people do this sport, the people who are running, you know, these are teammates. It's not like, you know, you own a horse and, and you your horse races, but some other jockey runs it or whatever. It's the owners who are handling these dogs all, all around the courses. So, yeah, I was the one handling Boo. And uh, so it's got the mental, the physical challenge all wrapped up in this, you know, interesting sport. And the other thing, too, is you can be very competitive even as you get a bit older, you know, so it allows you to, for me, I've been a lifelong athlete kind of dabbling in different sports. So I was able to continue doing that for quite a long time. Even after I'd had back surgery, you're watching there in that video, that was about, actually, that was less, less than three years after I'd had back surgery. I'm out there running at world team tryouts and stuff. So it's, it's pretty amazing that you can do this as people, some people get older, they get really good at, um, you know, kind of guiding their dogs or, or, you know, signaling their dogs at a distance. And so they can continue competing for quite a long time if you get really involved in it. The sport has gone way beyond what you see on that video since I used to compete. The, you know, it's funny when I watched the sport, I think originated in the late 1970s or something. And then when you watch what, how simple it was then, and then you look at what I did there, you know, say in 2008, then you say, oh, wow, you know, that was really technical and complex. If I went out there and tried to compete again today, it would be hopeless. I'd probably be running at novice level today or something with the complexity of the course, the handling that's required and everything else. But anyway, that dog. So I did these world team tryouts with her. I traveled to Germany with her. I did an international competition once. We were once on Purina has this dog challenge national dog challenge on tv i was once on that with her so i did a you know a number of cool little things with her just a great partner great you know dog that kept me athletic and competing and just took me a lot of places helped me meet a whole lot of interesting people and stuff throughout that time if you watch that video the second dog on that video was a littermate of boo and an international gold medalist champion by the name of Luca, okay? And Luca, like last September, September 2006 or so, died of a horrible cancer 
And, you know, at the time I kind of filed it back in my head, like, oh gosh, maybe my dog's going to get it someday because they're litter mates. Right. And so when my dog got sick earlier this week, I thought, oh God, maybe she's got the cancer. And, you know, some of her symptoms were consistent with it. So I had the full workup done. Turns out she doesn't have that cancer. So that's good. Uh, She's got pancreatitis and other old dog stuff essentially. And and she seems to be doing pretty well. So here I am talking to you. So I thank you for your patience. I thank you for being here. Um, You know, dog agility, if you have dogs that are athletic and smart and stuff and you want to go out and try a sport, I would suggest dabbling in it, but don't blame me if you get addicted because that's what happened to me. I got addicted and I did it for several years, but I thank Boo's breeder, Patricia Prince house for entrusting Boo to me many years ago. Uh, The only reason I got Boo is because she had a slight heart murmur and Patricia couldn't sell her to somebody who was a real agility competitor. And Patricia says, well, you know, these dogs are good at agility. Would you like to try it? Sure enough, I went out and tried it and just got hooked and, and Boo was really good. And she taught me so much. I had to learn so much about dogs and training and just sort of controlling your own emotions so that the dog doesn't feed off of them and, you know, in order to work effectively. So many things I learned from this dog. So I hope you guys understand why, you know, your pet is sick. Yeah, everybody gets kind of upset when their their pet is sick. But for me, she was just this, this great partner for so long. So I walked her today. She made a half-hearted attempt at kind of chasing a couple crows that we saw on the street as we were walking. She's lunging towards them a little bit. So good spirit in her. So I'm, I'm optimistic we'll have some more time to share, but we'll see. You just you just don't know. She's so kind of take a day at a time. So look at the title, right? So over at the blog, here's the title, A Note to My Younger Self, Hold My Beer. And there's a bit of artistic license that I have to take with this title here. And I have to kind of make sure that I'm not doing the thing that Ayn Rand talks about in this tweet that coincidentally just came out today from the Ayn Rand bot. I promise these tweets, I do not time them, you know, in that sense, you know, I, I program them in advance, but it's a randomly shuffled database. I've got a random number generator and I randomly shuffle it and then I, you know, queue them up and put them in this there's like a, you know, like a quote, or it's like a tweet generator, essentially, that I use, and then they go out. And I only do this like once every month and a half. So I did not plan this today. But here's the quotation from Rand, a rational man never distorts or corrupts his own standards, in order to appeal to the irrationality, stupidity, or dishonesty of others, end quote. Now, as people who are trying to spread good ideas. Sometimes what we try to do is engage with things that are out there in the culture. And it's similar to being an academic and trying to engage with the quote literature out there. You try to place yourself in the context of everybody else who doesn't think exactly like you do, you know, doesn't hold your philosophy and everything else. And you try to appeal to similarities in order to you know, get people to listen to what you have to say and say, hey, you know, maybe this person's got something worth listening to, something worth considering, and maybe you hope you're going to change a few minds on a few things here or there, or at least have them respect your point of view as 
a, you know, as something that, that's potentially worth listening to, not dismissing and stuff. And that this has been a struggle for objectivists a lot, right? One thing that I do, you know, I, I have some admiration, of course, for Ben Shapiro. He is a powerhouse out there in the culture. He has achieved a whole bunch of influence. Of course, his concern is to spread his particular worldview, which is heavily, if not completely, influenced by his Judaism. For me, obviously, mine is objectivism, but in terms of techniques, right, of engaging with the culture, I, I like to look at Shapiro and say, you know, what is he doing? And one of the things he does is he'll engage with just random things in the culture. And there are things that I've gotten a kick out of in the culture, so I figure why not engage with them. One of them is this GFDA. And some people in objectivism, oh, by the way, so what is GFDA? Good effing, yes, effing as in the expletive, design advice. So it's goodeffingdesignadvice.com, but you'd have to actually spell out the profanity if you're going to get to the right URL. Um, I learned about them because a poster produced by them was in the office of Johnny Ives. And so a lot of us who are Apple aficionados and consumers, we admire Johnny Ives and his design ability and stuff. And supposedly this poster from GFDA that he had in his office has been some inspiration to him. So you get interested in this. Got on their email list. Every Monday, well, not every Monday, but most Mondays, they, they missed a couple. Most Mondays, they send out this Monday advice, weekly advice. And this week, it was this. And the headline says, and risk everything. Now, we could talk about, are you going to risk everything all the time? No. Um, you know, risk everything would mean risk your life. So let's maybe not look at that so literally. And in fact, you might get argue with me. I'm not going to look at anything literally in this. But the thing that got me was at the end of this, and you can read the advice. I've got it posted in the, in the program notes at the blog, don'tletitgo.com. At the end of it, it says, hold my beer should be part of your effing lexicon. And the mid part says, you know, easy, safe, and expected can rarely be innovative, long-lived, and thought-provoking Creativity is effing valuable precisely because its products are unexpected. So it's the unexpected that they're focusing on here when they bring in this phrase that's been part of memes all over the place, hold my beer. Hold my beer should be part of your effing lexicon. So I went ahead and posted this, and I did a play when I posted it. I you know, said hold my beer in part because I've gotten so much hell for posting anything from GFDA. One time I dared when I posted something from GFDA to put my own little preamble that had profanity in it. And boy, did I get hell for that. And then I ended up blocking a couple of people because they were just really rude. You know, they were offended by my profanity, but they were the most offensive and rude people ever. So I ended up just blocking them. Life's too short. Um, so, yeah, hold my beer. I'm about to post something from GFDA. So so what does hold my beer exactly mean if you go to Urban Dictionary, defines it as this, the act of giving up one's alcoholic beverage temporarily to attempt a stunt he or she has never ventured. And so you have these two people together and, you know, the one person says, oh, wow, you think that, that stunt that you just did was impressive, hold my beer. And then the other person does this other. And 
you know, it's been used in different contexts out there. So somebody does something really outrageous and also bad, been used in that context a lot. But, you know, they say, oh, you think that that was outrageous and bad, hold my beer. And then the other person has done something even worse that you can't believe. Uh, So there's a lot of different attempted meanings out there. But what there is kind of implicit in it is somebody telling somebody else, hold my beer. Like, oh, wow, you thought that was really cool. Well, hold my beer. I'm going to do this really cool, unexpected thing. Um, oh, by the way, Roger in the chat room says, your video is super impressive. Yeah, thank you. I am very proud of it. I, sh- I should have added in my little brag about that video. We were running just for demonstration, right? We weren't actually competing for the world team. And we weren't really ranked highly enough to be able to do that, particularly when you do the courses that have some of the trickier obstacles. Those, in order to train the dog to perform them super quickly and efficiently, takes a lot more training, a lot more time than I put into it. So, you know, I say dabblers. That was a jumpers course. All it had was jumps, weave poles, and tunnels, which, yeah, you know, Boo was trained perfectly on all those you saw how quickly she did the weave poles she's just she was awesome she was so good anyway so we're running only for demonstration at the world team trials but still I went just to do that because it's just such a privilege to to be there and run with all those people and that particular run if we had been scored we would have been in the top five and which is awesome you know top five in the country in that height division and everything at the world team tryouts that if we had been running for actual competition, that was amazing. It was like the highlight of our career. The, the, um, the dog that ran after us, the one who I told you had gotten sick and everything, they were international gold medalist champions. And if you see, if you watch, if you analyze their performance, um, we were very close to them in time. Uh, and they actually ended up skipping a jump because what Ashley, the handler had done was, he, um, you know, he was trying to shave off the seconds and go as quickly as he possibly could. And so he ended up cueing her a little too soon. And so she actually went around a jump. She didn't go over the jump, which would have taken them a little bit more time. So imagine, you know, there I was, I was like pretty close to a gold medalist time in a comp. So yeah, that was just the highlight. That was so, so awesome. So, yeah. so thanks for noticing. Yeah. Good demo. Um, Pretty darn good dabblers. You know, uh, Robert, who listens to the show, he was saying, you know, champions. I'm like, no, not champions, but just really pretty good dabblers. Pretty, pretty good dabblers. Okay, so let's go back to the hold my beer thing, right? So, um, yeah, so the hold my beer, it's got this connotation of you comparing yourself to other people, right? You know, you tell somebody else, well, hold my beer because I'm going to do this thing. And you know, obviously as objectivists, we don't necessarily, and, and not everybody who listens to my show is an objectivist, I'm sorry, but, you know, I'm an objectivist, I'm a person who agrees with the core elements of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Did I agree with Ayn Rand on every single concrete thing, application of it? No, not necessarily, but I consider myself, yes, I, I'm an objectivist. Okay, so do we believe that it is a valuable thing to compare ourselves to other people? No, we just say, I want to be able to do this and I want to do it well, you know, to the best of my ability. So the idea of, oh, well, you think that that's this really cool thing. So hold my beer and I'm going to, you know, impress you or wow you or do it even not 
really the way that we want to think about this. So even as I posted this hold my beer meme on social media, I said there's a more helpful way to think about it, which is, and, and Jordan Peterson has been somebody I've been watching and listening to a bit lately. One thing that he talks about is when you talk about improving yourself, improving your life, that the thing that you should do is you should compare yourself, not to other people, but to yourself yesterday, for example. You know, Try to be better than you were yesterday. Take small steps and all those types of things. And so all of that, I was saying, okay, you know, the hold my beer, you should say, hold your beer, you know, hold my beer to your yesterday self, or maybe even your younger self. And that's how I got to the title of today's show, you know, note to my younger self. Now, you know, that's a whole other part of the culture that you can engage with, because there's a whole, if you just Google letter to my younger self or note to my younger self, people are writing all these things and they're saying, okay, you know, the advice that you would give to your younger self and everything else. Um, and then there's like the, the pushback from that because people say, oh, you know, be kind to your younger self. Uh, you're, you're enough. And that's true. A lot of people, when they write the letters to the younger self, they expect the younger self to understand some of those things without having gone through the life experience, you know? So there's that too. Um, the hold my beer, if if you say, okay, a note to my younger self, hold my beer, I like it. It's you know, you're you're just telling the younger self, hey, you know, look what you're gonna be able to do in the future if you continue along the path of improving yourself in various ways. Um now we could get a little bit nitpicky, right? So again, you can judge me. You can say, Okay, Amy you know, you're taking a little bit too artistic, too much artistic license on this show. I do. I have some fun with this show. I have some artistic license that I take here. Uh, am I distorting or corrupting my own standards in order to use this GFDA meme and to appeal to maybe in your opinion, irrationality, stupidity, or dishonesty of other, it wouldn't be dishonesty, but maybe there's some sort of irrationality in here. If you go back and look at the hold my beer meme at urban dictionary, the act of giving up one's alcoholic beverage so is it, you know we're impaired we're all at a party we're getting drunk you know here hold my beer or I could come back and I can you could say rationalize or I can defend it and I can interpret it a certain way and I could say hold my beer in the sense that my younger self was not necessarily intoxicated, but was at least mistaken about a number of things and didn't have the clear understanding. And I'm giving up all of the things that were clouding my understanding of things, not necessarily an, an intoxicating beverage, but I'm letting my younger self just hold on to all the garbage that I didn't understand that distorted my perception of reality and my perception of the things that were important and the things that I needed to do. Um, so what does hold my beer look like? If you're telling that to your former self, you say, hold my beer. Like I said, one of the things is you're setting aside all of the things that you maybe thought were so important when they were younger and you learn later that they aren't so important. Uh, maybe you learn some things that you didn't think were important, but actually were very important for you to learn and understand and know and internalize all, all of that, anything that 
you thought was maybe preventing you from seeing the right path when you were younger. It's like you give that up, here, hold my beer, and then let me show you the unexpected, awesome thing that is possible when you give this up, when you you go on. Now, the other thing that you can think about with hold my beer is the kind of the virtue of pride and objectivism. Those people who understand Rand's understanding of pride, pride is not, oh, you know, a feeling that we pat ourselves on the back. Rand defines pride as a virtue, as moral ambitiousness, that you should try to continually improve yourself all the time. So if you think about, you know, hold my beer to my yesterday myself, my younger self, you could see that over time, if you work to continually improve yourself, that the things that you can achieve are, you know, perhaps to you unexpected and surprising and everything else. This is why it's good to go back and sort of reflect on what have you achieved in the last year? How has this past year of your life been better than the prior year? And what was it that you did in order to achieve that? Um, what kind of beer is at this party? Yes, Roger. Uh, you know, there was a beer that we used to drink when I was working at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill years ago. I taught for one year, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. They had an unofficial official department beer, and it was called, fittingly, Three Philosophers, because, you know, philosophy department, Three Philosophers beer from the Omegang Brewery in New England. So it's kind of a dark, beer, pretty rich and everything. So that I think that would be the beer, the Three Philosophers beer. One thing you can do is you can debate. There's actually three silhouettes of philosophers. Who are the three philosophers on the bottle and stuff? So that's fuel for discussion. Um, yeah, you know, but what what is what does it mean, hold my beer? It means that you are committed to surprising yourself by continually taking steps to improve your life, trying things that are ambitious for you. Um, I, I wanted to bring this this other thing in, which is, you know, ever so often these self-improvement gurus, a lot of it is eh, sales pitch and everything else. They want you to buy their courses or whatever. But every so often there is a catchphrase or acronym or something that appeals. And there's one of these guys named Eben Pagan, and he's very smart, and he's got a lot of really – you know, decent material and stuff too. But he, he's a businessman and a sales guy like everybody else. One thing that he's got, what he talked about, uh, an acronym using uh, hope, the word hope as an acronym. And he would, you know, as an acronym, he would make hope stand for highest opportunity for personal evolution. And the idea is that you look at all the different areas of your life and you identify what is this one area that I could focus on for the next while. You know, you define what that is, where if I focused on that, that would take me further in the direction of the life that I want than if I focused on any other thing. So, you know, where do you... In, in which way do you tell yourself, your former self, to hold your beer? You're like, hold my beer. I'm going to be focusing on this thing and making some major breakthroughs in this area, some major progress in this area for the next little while. And what I'm going to do is going to, you know, talk to your yesterday self. What I'm going to do is going to 
surprise you or impress you and you say, oh, okay, wow. And the examples, of course, that they have in the hold my beer meme are just stupid. You know, oh, I'm going to do this double backflip and everything. Not, not that. But you know the sort of things, right, where you work a little bit on something every day and you get a little bit better, a little bit better, 1% improvement all the time. Um, and then you can make your life leaps and bounds better by continually focusing on, on those areas. My little, oh, uh, Roger in the chat room says, if you're going to look at the three philosophers, beer label, how about Aristotle, Aquinas, and Rand? I'm doubting, I mean, it would be wonderful to think that they had Rand in mind there. It'd be nice if they did, but, oh, and three A's, yeah, so Aristotle, Aquinas, and Ayn Rand, that'd be great. Excellent. Um, In terms of more life advice and everything else. One thing I look forward to digging into is a link that I put in the program notes. The book is not being released until January 23rd. And both I and Don Watkins have made attempts on Twitter to try to get Jordan Peterson to get his publisher to get the book out sooner, but it's not coming out to January 23rd. It is his book called 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. And I can't remember where in those 12 rules that he talks about this, but he talks about this idea of if you're going to improve yourself, the thing to compare yourself to is your yesterday self, not to other people. And the reason he does it primarily, I think, is he has this idea that when you're older, you're kind of more set in your habits and everything else. And so you can only really compare yourself to your yesterday self because you don't have as much leeway to change your life or whatever it is. So it's like, oh, poor you, you're stuck. That's, as far as I understand, more of his focus. And I would disagree with that as the way to go. It's like, oh, poor you, you're stuck. It is harder to change your habits as you get older. But it's, you know, don't be other focused. Don't be focused on what everybody else is doing. Focus on what you want and what you're doing and where you see, like I say, again, Evan Pagan, whatever, but I liked it from him, right? Where is your highest opportunity for personal evolution? You know, where is that place that you can focus in your life and make progress? So that's in a nutshell what I mean by hold my beer, that you tell your not even so much your yesterday self, right? Because I don't think you can really impress your just yesterday self. Um, you can always try to be a little bit better than yesterday and you can track your progress, but you're really only going to wow a significantly younger self, I think. You know, there's going to be some significant period of time where you're going to make this progress. So, for instance, go, like I said, going back over your last year and saying, okay, how much better is my life this year? than it was last year? What was it that I did to make my life so much better this year than it was last year? What areas? And in what areas, of course, you can look, you know, do I still have room for improvement? Where can I focus on to try to better my life and get closer to my goals in in the next year and all all of that? But yeah, longer period of time. It's not necessarily your yesterday self, but it's some earlier version of yourself. You say, here, hold my beer. You're going to be amazed at, at what I do. So there's my little, what do you guys think? I'm forcing it. I'm doing a little kind of procrustean, let's put objectivism into somebody's non-objectivist meme out there or something. I don't know. 
I was I was definitely having fun with it. I just I love this idea that the idea of, you know, risk everything. Then I got nitpicked about, you know, well, you don't really risk. It's not risks because you understand that everything that you're doing, you you know, you know, what you have to do in order to achieve your goals in that context. There's some risk in everything that you do, but do you risk everything? You're risking your life all the time. Not necessarily. Anyway, if you guys want to call in and tell me your your thoughts on my interaction with the little GFDA meme, you're going to see them from me every so often. Not every week is it going to be enough that it actually inspires a title, but in a way, all of it sort of played in with me looking back at my dog agility career because I think when I was younger, I wouldn't have thought, oh, yeah, you're going to you're going to take a dog with you in a bag in cabin to Germany and you're going to go compete in an international competition, uh, spend a few days in Germany and fly back. And that dog's going to be perfectly behaved in the cabin. And then like this fierce little thing out on course and she's adorable and cute. And I wouldn't have thought I was going to be able to do all that stuff. So yeah, um, it kind of played into all of that. And then, you know, what, what is the next hold my beer? Is it going to be, oh, I'm going to be an even better athlete as I get even older? Doubt it. Uh, there's going to be other things I'm going to have to focus on and do in order to say, okay, you know, hold my beer. Here's the next, here's my next trick. Um, I've got a couple things up my sleeve, but I'm not talking now. So that's the hold my beer. Selfishness says, sounds like a philosopher pulling a thread. <laughs> Maybe, right? Uh I've got one person who is in the queue for telephone. If you want to call in, 760-888-5817 is the number. If you want to talk, leave a comment, ask a question, et cetera, you press a one, and then I know that you actually want to have a uh, leave a comment. If you've gone over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, you know that this is not all I have planned today to talk about my dog and talk about GFDA. I've got some news stories as well. One of them is the New York Times, and someone is telling me that the New York Times is going after Judge Alex Kaczynski because of his vote on the travel ban. I wasn't aware of that in particular. Uh, Obviously, there's some things in Trump's travel ban substantively that I don't think are bad to do. Overall, my approach to Trump on this travel ban idea is that his first line of attack, right? Suppose Trump says, I don't want to admit into our country refugee populations from Muslim areas where there are so, you know, frequently terrorists, ISIS members, whatever, uh, you know, we don't want to admit refugee populations from those areas because they can't be effectively screened. And there is this war going on, right? Where these people want to destroy us. We just had an attempted attack in, in New York City this past week. So Trump says, hey, we want to keep these people out. We are entitled, you know, out of self-defense in order to do this. These refugee populations, you know, we don't want to bring them in. What is the first way that you do that? What is the first way that you keep the refugee populations out? How about not subsidizing refugees in the budget? How about not including a budget item for refugees? I do not think, and I assume that most people who listen to my show, you do not think it's a proper function of government to subsidize refugees. That's a, you know, it's a job of charity. 
That's the job of charity. Private charity, they want to bring refugee populations here. Okay, fine. And then, of course, we have to figure out how they can get screened, if they can be effectively screened. What Trump is doing is he's trying to still include funding for refugees in the budget and yet try to weed out which refugees he does or doesn't want through the travel bans. So I'm less sympathetic to him in that regard because I would like to see that budget item entirely removed. As I understand, whatever budget, and I don't know where they are in these budgets. It's all, I mean, you know, they're funding. They keep just extending funding. They don't have a real full budget. The last time I heard that there was a full budget proposal coming from Trump, he was including in that budget proposal funding for 50,000 refugees. We as taxpayers are subsidizing these. And then, of course, we are also paying through our tax money for him to pursue these travel bans through the courts. So it is a farce. Get rid of that line of funding, right? Don't fund the refugees. And then maybe the travel ban wouldn't be such a big deal. Why? Because they'd have to figure out their own way to get over here. You could still try to do the travel ban, but I don't have sympathy as much for the trials and tribulations that he's gone through with the travel ban unless he's also taken that first line of action, which is get that out of the budget entirely. Okay, so that being said, am I, am I sympathetic with you know, some of the content of travel ban as I understand it? He's chosen particular areas where there is uh, you know, a, a serious risk of admitting somebody who is part of ISIS or some other terrorist group Muslim terrorist group, people who want to kill us because we are not Muslims. Um, I, you know, I read a, a story. It was like this guy in New York. He tried to blow himself up in front of some Christmas thing. Why? Because he's anti the celebration of Christmas. And that would be probably in both the Christian sense and the secular sense. He would think that it's evil, that Christmas is evil. We don't want those people here. We have a right to take reasonable steps in order to keep those people out. And part of it could be a travel ban like this. Okay, so travel ban. I'd be sympathetic. Uh, I assume that Kaczynski voted to uphold the travel ban, and then they're saying this is a witch hunt. So what's the witch hunt? The witch hunt is he's accused of sexual harassment. Judge Alex Kaczynski of the Ninth Circuit, used to be chief judge for quite a stretch of time, is accused of sexual harassment. What are the allegations? He is accused of making various suggestive comments that have made both clerks working for him, clerks working for judges in other chambers, and um, other staff who've worked in the chambers, making them uncomfortable over the years. Now, the judge has been, I guess, a judge for 32 years, it says. Um, So... This handful, there's six women, four of them are asking to remain anonymous, but it's all what they call harassment. None of the women have alleged any sort of physical assault, you know, where they've had some sort of sexual contact forced on them or anything like that. It's all suggestive comments or lewd jokes or or things like that. Uh, Now, one of the reasons I bring this up, there's two reasons to bring this up. One is that... If indeed New York Times is doing this for political reasons, then, yeah, this is part of the negative side effect of the so-called Me Too movement that's come out of Harvey Weinstein. And we're going to talk about Weinstein a little bit because there's this piece 
that you need to know about that was also in New York Times about Weinstein. Um, but this is part of the negative fallout, right? Because what is being alleged here is not assault, right? It is not physical force at all exerted by Kaczynski. It's comments that he made that made people uncomfortable, what they call harassment. And I've been careful when I've been talking about the whole Me Too thing to delineate on the one hand, of course, any sort of assault, sexual or otherwise, any initiation of physical force, that should be actionable. Should you have a legal cause of action for so-called harassment, for somebody making comments that make you, quote, uncomfortable? No, I don't. And I think what we're seeing here is some of the fallout from people not drawing a distinction between words and actions. Now, you know, you could say, you know, some people are saying, oh, you know, I make these comments and stuff, and if you complain, then you're going to suffer, you know, problems with your career advancement and everything else. What is the answer to that? The answer to that is you don't have a right to a particular job. Do you have a right to a job? No. Um, Somebody has a right to give you a job for rational reasons, for irrational reasons, whatever, and you need to choose accordingly and you need to draw your boundaries accordingly. So, you know, one thing to be clear here is with Kaczynski, the only thing that has been alleged is comments, you know, really raunchy comments that make people uncomfortable. Uh, Some of them are, you know, pretty yucky comments, right? Um, One of the stories is that he called a clerk into his office and showed her uh, pictures. And it was a couple people sitting on a couch and they're nude at a party with beer. I think they're all having beer. Um, at a party, you know, maybe they're like, hold my beer, I'm going to sit here and be nude on the couch. I don't know. But, you know, they're sitting, it's like two of them are sitting there nude at a party with everybody else clothed. And I, I, one of the questions, too, is like, well, you know, does that turn you on or something? And, you know, I don't know if he did it or not. Um, you know, I don't know how close he was to whoever it was at the time. But this is not the same thing as initiating force against anybody else. Um, this is just lewd humor, basically. You know, I think that's funny. Oh, these two people are sitting here nude in a party with all these other people. Is it tasteless or I don't know. Now, one of the reasons that I talk about this is that I was an intern, what in law we call it extern, but an intern for Judge Kaczynski many years ago, more than I care to admit. Um, and you know, I worked in his chambers a lot, spoke with him a lot. And I also one time got to travel with him and his clerks up to San Francisco because the judges would travel to San Francisco to do sittings up there. So I was there for a few days working all kinds of late nights and all kinds of stuff, you know, different hours and everything. Uh, been around him a lot. Never an improper sexual advance in terms of anything physical did he make raunchy jokes sometimes sure that I remember but it doesn't offend me you know and and I think people have this is one of the dangers of sexual harassment right is that people have different boundaries or different ideas about what bothers them in this realm and therefore I think it becomes so subjective and it and there's this danger of and we've seen you know kind of the backlash about this there's this danger of taking all of the fun about joking about sex in different contexts when 
we say, okay, well, now it's sexual harassment. Uh, for some people, they say, yeah, you know, his sense of humor is just too raunchy or just too lewd or whatever. And for some people, maybe it's just too much to take. For other people, you say, okay, you know, whatever, it's a raunchy joke, ha ha, okay, fine, it's not my particular taste. Sometimes you think, yeah, that's funny, that's funny. Maybe it's more than a joke that I would tell, but, you know, yeah, sure, that's funny. It's not my taste. I wouldn't, you know, collect jokes of this type or anything. Okay, fine. Um, this guy is such an amazing legal mind and so insanely productive that, you know, he jokes sometimes about raunchy stuff, had a funky sense of humor. I don't know. Uh, I, one, one thing I was saying when I posted this earlier on social media was sexual harassment. No. I mean, for me, I wouldn't have, you know, said that anything that he, any of the conduct that he had or any things that he said to me, would I feel like I was harassed in any way sexually? No. Uh, but I joked, I said, okay, well, philosophical harassment, because this is one interaction that I did have with him. It was pretty early on when I first started working there in the chambers. And I think, you know, he knew as an objectivist. And um, I think he also knew that uh, friendly with Leonard Peikoff, right, who was not friendly with Nathaniel Brandon. And the judge knew Nathaniel Brandon. So the judge gives me Nathaniel Brandon's uh, audio tape. It's an audio tape of the lecture called The Benefits and Hazards of Ayn Rand's Philosophy, something like that. Benefits and Hazards, I think, is what everybody refers to it as shorthand. And he gave me the assignment of listening to that and coming back and telling him what I thought of it. So I call that philosophical harassment because he made me listen to Nathaniel Brandish, right? Not, I mean, he did give me that assignment, but it, yeah, it's not harassment, whatever. It's fine. You know, I listened to this and then I told him what I thought of it. Uh, I remember he made this one comment. It was funny. He said, Nathaniel Brandon is an acquired taste. And I said, well, how about if I choose not to acquire it? <laughs> um, and, you know, I did. I gave him my evaluation of benefits and hazards and he was satisfied. So that was it. That was the end of that. It's not like he came back and, you know, said, hey, listen to some more and some more. I think he, he respected. I did some co-writing with him and things like that as well after that. So I think, you know, I proved myself in my little review of this thing that was intellectually challenging to me, right? It was, it was, a, it was a good thing. So harassment. Now, um, the thing that then gets interesting, if you, if you look in the program notes at don'tletitgo.com, not only did the New York Times just publish this article about Kaczynski being accused of sexual harassment. They did a level up. They went ahead and published an editorial, and this was yesterday, entitled, Who Will Judge the Judge? So this is the editorial board of New York Times. And what they're calling for, they're basically daring the federal court system to investigate him and try to impeach him for this conduct. And why? Because it's, and this is a quoting from the editorial, repeated disrespect and harassment of women, the exploitation of the unique intimacy of the clerkship environment, and the abuse of the immense power a federal judge holds over the young lawyers who depend on him for professional advancement, end quote. Now, talk for a second about this intimacy of the clerkship environment. You know, that all depends on the judge. But Kaczynski has said in, in statements recently that he treats his clerks like family. And he does. I have seen it firsthand. Um, he has 
invited to his home all the former clerks and staff and externs and everybody else I've been to his home with his wife and family and, you know, little menagerie of pets and everything else in the world. And it's just like one huge welcoming family gathering. He does treat everybody like family. And yeah, so you say, okay, well, he's like your uncle who's got a raunchy sense of humor and maybe, you know, you don't appreciate every single joke that he tells. What in the world, you know, um, I am unaware of any time that he's actually, you know, initiated any sort of force on a woman to, you know, try to have sexual contact, any sort of unwanted sexual contact. He's been married forever. As far as I know, he's got a great marriage. I've seen his wife many times. Um, should I put a disclaimer? Judge Kaczynski also performed the service for my wedding with Leonard Peikoff. So, I mean, he has treated me also like family this whole time. Um, now, the other thing I would tell you is, you know, back when I was an intern for him so many years ago, and this is before I was ever going to marry Leonard or anything, uh, I, you know, you have to excuse me, I'm going to just toot my own horn a little. Uh, I would think that if you were going to try to sexually harass somebody and really make them feel uncomfortable and make unwanted sexual advances, that I would have been a worthy target of those things, at least back in that day, right? Uh, it's not like I'm always the bombshell type. You know, I've always been more of the athletic, natural-looking-ish type, you know, so not always bombshell. I could put on the bombshell thing sometimes, you know, and I, li I like to do that, want to do more of that. Um, but no, you know, if he was going to do it, I, I would have expected at some point all the time through the years. All I've seen is raunchy humor. And yeah, sometimes you could say, okay, well, I wouldn't make that comment or I wouldn't tell that joke, but that's who cares, you know? And, and do you want the judges to be able to treat all of their fam, you know, their staff and their clerks and stuff like family and have this ongoing long decades relationships with all of them and welcome them in the home and all. I mean, these parties were awesome. I mean, just the vast number of people that he would just invite to come over, you know, like I said, with his wife and his kids and everything else, it was. It, so it seems very much like a witch hunt. And, you know, then you got to say, okay, what the New York Times is calling for is they're calling for legal action. They're calling for the destruction of a career of somebody that, as far as even the allegations are concerned, is just made improper con uh, comments that have made some people feel uncomfortable. And as Kaczynski says, he's, you know, 35 years and this is all they've got. I'm not very worried. John in the chat room says, I wonder how Kaczynski's remarks would compare to most rap song lyrics. Yeah, probably pretty tame. Selfishness says, wow, lawyers are also adults. Yeah, it's true. We are also adults. You know, and what you would do, the, the, only, the only thing you wonder, right? You say, okay, this is a federal court system so this is government right but still i think even in the context of government you would have to have this same idea that you are going to keep as a career judge i mean they're talking about impeaching this guy who is one of the most talented jurists of both last and this century i don't know that i mean 
the guy, he would edit his opinions like 30 times. He was so meticulous. I'm sure he still is. Some of the opinions have just been um, legendary in terms of the creativity and the artistry that goes into him saying there's one where um, the title of, you know, the Fountainhead Rants was in there along with a whole bunch of others. I think the case was called Sayufi, S-Y-U-F-Y. If you look at his opinion in that, it's total artistry because he communicates the substantive law and inserts into the opinion all of these movie titles. The guy, I mean, just a powerhouse. And you say, oh, well, you know, he's made some comments that have offended people. It's ridiculous. So I would say even when you're talking about a government employee, you say a government employee making people feel uncomfortable or whatever, there is no right to a clerkship either. There are plenty of judges you could choose to work for, and you could say, hey, you know, Judge Kaczynski's sense of humor, I just don't like it, you know, whatever, it offends me. And then you miss out. You miss out on a brilliant mind and a great talent. This guy would sleep like only four hours a night and work like a dog. And yeah, he demanded a lot of his clerks, but he demanded more of himself. It to me, it's it's ridiculous. It's very unjust, and it is. It's a it's an unfortunate side effect of this whole, um, you know, the whole Me Too movement. Because as again, there there is a root thing that we need to be looking at about improving our culture with the Me Too movement. Um, I don't think what anything that Kaczynski is doing is something that we need to criticize in a major cultural way. Some people would disagree. Some people would say, okay, you know, I have boundary lines and I would say that some of the comments that Kaczynski has made are, are inappropriate. Certainly if, you know, you'd say, okay, well, if Kaczynski's getting the sense that a particular clerk is offended by that type of humor and he, of course, you know, he values, he wants to keep that clerk around, then he's going to, um, you know, step back. But if, you know, a lot of times people don't say, oh, well, that offends me or whatever. Um, they're too scared. They're too scared to maintain their own boundaries. And so maybe these women didn't maintain their boundaries in the workplace, didn't laugh him off and, you know, just kind of excuse themselves as quickly as they should or however you want to try to finesse that sort of situation. Um to give the idea, it's like, look, okay, I know you think that's funny. I really don't think that's funny. Uh, why not do that, you know, and then try to maintain a good working relationship where people can have different ideas about what is or isn't funny in the workplace. To me, this, you know, you say, okay, here's this great judicial mind, but sometimes he's got a raunchy sense of humor. Meh. Ridiculous, you know, and, and the, the things that the clerks can learn with him as well. If he was making improper sexual advances physically, okay, fine. But no, I've never, ever felt like that. And like I said, I thought I would have been a, a worthy target of that. So um, so that's that. What is that that we actually need to learn? That's going to be the next story in terms of, you know, what, what do we need to keep our, you know, our focus on in the whole fallout from Harvey Weinstein? We get a reminder of it in the story that I want to talk about next, which is this New York Times opinion piece written by Salma Hayek. And I want to talk about that next, but why don't I go ahead and go over to my little blog talk studio and give you a musical break for a second. And I'll be right back, and we're going to talk about the the Hayek story.
Okay, welcome back, everyone. As I said, if you want to check out program notes, always the place to do so is don'tletitgo.com. That's where I've got the program notes for today's show. And next up is a story not of just sexual so-called harassment, you know, people making comments that make other people uncomfortable, but actual assault. Harvey Weinstein is my monster too, says Salma Hayek. I, you know, when I posted this on social media, I said I couldn't really excerpt it effectively. Uh, the whole piece is definitely worth reading. For some people, it's behind a paywall, and maybe you've exceeded your monthly quota of New York Times and everything else. The thing I can tell you is she goes into great detail of, over the course of her career, trying to navigate around Harvey Weinstein, who, you know, essentially was a predator, a sexual predator of talent in the industry. You know, her summation for years, he was my monster. She calls him my monster. And to me, I would say the worst part of it is she, I think even though she had had some misgivings, but she thought, okay, it's going to be okay now. She brought that movie, um, I'm trying to think of the story of Frida Kahlo, to him eventually and was you know made that movie with him and once they had begun the production of it so i mean you know she's completely invested and sunk in it and everything else he ended up making a demand on her to do um a sex scene that was gratuitous you know you didn't really need to have this particular it was you know a woman on woman sex scene and everything else and she describes in it you know first of all, the torture to decide to go ahead and do this scene, right? And how it literally made her sick. It made her vomit to do it. And she said, you know, not because she's doing a sex scene with a woman. That's not the big thing. It's because she was doing it simply to placate this monster of Harvey Weinstein. But, you know, that's just one. That's just a highlight of what a bastard this guy is, that he threatened after they'd already begun the production, the filming of this movie, that's like her baby, you know, this is, and she had jumped through so many hoops by that point. He made a whole bunch of unrealistic demands and she met every single one of them, not sexual, but you know, other stuff, business demands. She does everything. And then they're in the production. And then he says, Oh, you got to do this uh, girl on girl sex scene. Otherwise I'm going to rip the whole rug out from under it. She couldn't tell anybody. She just had to do it. And she forced herself through it. I don't know how she did it. She's vomiting and everything. And somehow I guess it came out on film. This poor woman. Um, So if you want to see what a real monster is in terms of sexual harassment and in terms of sexual assault, look at Weinstein. And so that's why I say, you know, you look at New York Times and New York Times is calling to destroy the career of a talented legal jurist because he made some comments that made some people uncomfortable in the course of a 35 year career in the chambers where he had a policy of treating everybody as close family and did everything, like I said, consistent with that. He performed weddings for so many of his former clerks and interns and stuff. And, you know, like I said, invited to the house and God. Weinstein is a monster. Kaczynski is not, you know, whatever you want to say about a sense of humor, he's not. He is, uh, you know, this teddy bear guy with a raunchy sense of humor. Forget it. Um, anyway, Weinstein's this monster. 
there's two things I want to talk about with respect to this Hayek piece. People weren't into the discussion of it so much on my thread. Of course, maybe I needed to engage more, but I got really involved, like I said this week, with my dog. Uh, my friend James Valiant posted this article as well, and then a lot of people got in discussion on his wall about it. And there were two things that came out, and I wanted to talk about those. One was the uh, her her expressing the emotions that she felt and went through because of the horrible abuse and everything else that Weinstein visited upon her. Um, one person made a comment on, on James's wall. It's about, oh, well, you know, we, just the facts. Give us just the facts. Don't give us all this emotion. You know, they, she, she dumped a pile of estrogen on me or something, some guy said. So, you know, first of all, oh, is it only women who express emotions. Now, maybe, you know, sometimes maybe women have an easier time expressing emotions depending on, you know, who the woman is or whatever. That's regrettable because, yes, if you're a guy, you should be able to express emotions too. But, you know, this is not a court of law. Now, a lot of people could say, okay, well, everyone's being convicted in the court of public opinion. But this is an opinion piece, an opinion piece in New York Times. And so, she is expressing emotions along with it, doesn't it also give more credibility? You know, the things that she's describing, some of the things she's describing could qualify as assault and other things could qualify as just harassment. Um, you know, you might say that, that, yeah, it is, it's force even. Like, you know, when he talks about he's going to pull the rug out from under the production of the movie about Frida Kahlo, um, you might say, oh, well, she doesn't have a right to a job and blah, blah, blah. Well, do you think he was upfront at the beginning that one of the contractual provisions on her was that she was going to have to do this particular type of scene that was going to make her feel really uncomfortable? No, he only sprung that on her later. So this is an initiation of force by him, and it's one that she tolerated because she wanted to see that go through. Um, so it's not just harassment, all of this. I would say it's, it's the equivalent of assault, what he did to her because of the fraud element to it um you know if he had been up front with her at the very beginning and said by the way this is never going to come to fruition and unless you do this scene then she'd probably go get it produced by somebody else right but he got her trapped so um so th so this idea that she's supposed to catalog everything that he did and not express emotion about it it, it it's phony it's garbage it I think if somebody says that, if they say, oh, well, she just dumps a pile of estrogen, it just conveys that you have no sympathy for women who go through this kind of thing. Um, and you have no connection with the fact that it might be okay for even guys to express emotion sometimes. But as one other commenter had pointed out on, on the thread, not only is expression emotion, it's good, it, it's better for her to be able to express the emotion that she felt as she goes along this, you know, these are women finally revealing this horrible experience that they've gone through. Imagine that you're confined to just relating the facts and you're not able to convey any of the emotion at all. You're very stilted, you're not able, so it's better for her to do it, but also from the perspective of, of us, the reader, it makes it more credible. And that was the point of one of the commenters that, said, yeah, definitely, absolutely. It's it's more credible a story when the person 
expresses the very natural, understandable emotions that they would have felt as a result of all the abuse and everything else that this guy was, this monster was guilty of. Um, so that's one thing that I wanted to talk about was, you know, kind of the reaction to her expression of emotion in it. Most people in the thread, they thought it was fine, but there was just this one person who had said, yeah, she just dumped a bunch of estrogen on us. It's like, no, this is, this is not a court of law. This is an opinion piece. And then moreover, you would say that when you are reading an essay where she's describing this, that it's, it's much more credible that way. Um, so that's one part. Here's the other thing. And, and, you know, if you're looking at the program notes, you see that I've, I'm bringing in Leonard Peikoff's book and everything into the program notes. And here's, here's why. Some people were saying, well, she was dishonest all those years. She wasn't honest. And so, you know, and that's the old thing. It's like, why now? You know, she was dishonest. She hid things. You know, I guess she probably had to say certain things to explain like why she was so ill when she was trying to film that scene or whatever she had to explain it away so they okay she was dishonest um why wouldn't she just be honest and and you know talk about weinstein and and expose everything then at the time and what this brought up for me when they talk about you know she she was somehow dishonest or any of these women they're dishonest if they don't right at that moment reveal what they've been through um it brought up just kind of the revisiting of the virtue of honesty for me. And, you know, I like to go back and circle back to it every so often. I used to love teaching the objectivist take on the virtue of honesty to, for example, legal ethics students when I was teaching in law school, or I love teaching it to my undergrad students when I would be teaching introductory ethics, either at the Air Force Academy or, um, you know, at Chapel Hill or UT Austin, wherever I was teaching love doing this. Why? Because in objectivism, honesty is not some sort of out of context duty. Um, honesty is tied to your selfish interests. So it's, you know, it's not like you're honest because you have this duty to other people to give them the truth. And yeah, you know, if, if you were able to tell a lie, you could gain some sort of value, get away with something, but you know, you really shouldn't do it. It's something you shouldn't do. You you could gain a value by by being dishonest, but you shouldn't do it. It's it's wrong to do. That's how most people think about honesty. They think of honesty as being some duty that's imposed on you by God or Kantian morality uh, or something like that. Or you know, maybe some people think, well, most of the time you should be honest because you know, if you're not honest, you could be found out. And so, utilitarian wise, you know, you just kind of look at it each. Each thing is a new day and you say, okay, well, I'll be, I'll be honest here because I don't think I get away with lying. But here, boy, you know, I could really get this cool value if I just lie. That's not how objectivism sees it at all. So how does objectivism see it? Objectivism sees being honest as, and the way that Leonard Peikoff talks about it in Objectivism, the philosophy Ayn Rand, is dismissing unreality. Um, if you think about with objectivism, we, we talk about our rational faculty, our reason is our means of survival. And of course, this is an Aristotelian notion. So Rand developed it to a large extent, but 
she, you know, this this idea of rationality and using reason to perceive the world. That orientation is very Aristotelian in, in nature. But if you think about the importance of remaining in contact with reality and using your reason in order to perceive the things that you need to do in order to further your life, to further your interests, then you can see as a corollary of that, that if you are deceiving yourself in any way, if you're evading, if you're being dishonest primarily to yourself, then you are harming your ability to stay in touch with reality. This mind that we have, this rational faculty that we have, it, the thing that it's good for is helping us to survive. And it does that by us being rational, by remaining in contact with reality. So honesty for somebody who understands that doesn't have to do with fulfilling some duty to other people. It is something that you want to do for yourself in order to remain in contact with reality. Uh, and so I was revisiting in Objectivism, the philosophy of Ayn Rand, the section on honesty, and um, I'm gonna. There's one little part that I that I want to read you, but if I go back to the beginning of it, excuse my my page turning sounds and all that stuff, but here, just at the you know the very beginning of the section, honesty is the refusal to fake reality, i.e., to pretend that facts are are other than they are. Pretense, as we know, is metaphysically impotent. It can neither erase an existent nor create one. Now, how is the way, what is the way that Ben Shapiro puts it? Oh, yeah, he has that tweet. It's a pinned tweet on his Twitter. It's, you know, facts don't care about your feelings. You can feel that you want things to be a certain way however you want, but it's not going to change the fact of the matter. And the virtue of honesty is a recognition of that fact. You're going to do your utmost to remain in contact with reality, to acknowledge what the facts are in any given situation. And that's when you're making representations of it and thinking about it either just in your own mind or, of course, when you're also talking to other people. Um, one thing that, you know, every time I go through these sections, there's, uh, little things that, that jump out at me. He t- Peacock talks about, he says, in regard to motive, intellectual honesty means seeking knowledge because one needs it to act properly. Such a person intends to practice any idea he accepts as true. And that's what I like. You know, every time there is something about, you know, something in the world, some question in the world that I want to answer, I just want to dive in a little bit deeper and see what I think about it. That's typically the time that I come back and I dive into one of Leonard's books or one of Ayn Rand's essays or something to try to refresh and get a different perspective and sort of reinforce my thinking, um, you know, reaffirm and and clarify and and further develop my thinking on a particular subject or, or topic. And that's where I ended up here today, right? I you know I I was considering what this one commenter on the Hayek piece. Um, you know, what what he said, he said, well, God, you know, she was lying all those years. Why was she lying all these years? You know, she wasn't honest. And here's the question. Was she honest or was she not honest? What 
our philosophy, you know, if you again, if you subscribe to Rand's philosophy, what we would say is that honesty is a principle. So it's not the case that you can go, oh, well, in this case, I have these benefits to gain from being dishonest and um, I have, you know, these risks and things. And I'll just kind of weigh every single case as a new day and decide whether the benefits outweigh the risk. And if the benefits outweigh the risk, maybe I'll lie today and then tomorrow I'll be honest, everything else. We treat it as a principle. We say, no, you know, we're going to be honest in every single situation. But then you say, okay, well, so was Hayek dishonest, right? Sometimes she probably had to say some things to cover up the fact that Weinstein was treating her like a monster, right? She had to finesse some things here or there. Maybe she even had to outright deny that he was treating her badly in certain contexts. We don't know this. Um, but suppose that she was. And then the question was, was she practicing the virtue of honesty when this was going on? Was she being dishonest? Is she worthy of criticism in this regard? And I would say, and I would say that Rand's philosophy would say, no, she was not. And then you say, okay, well, Amy, how is that, right? Because you just said you can't do the, the weighing and stuff. And, you know, she just wanted to, you know, further her career or whatever it is she wanted to, you know, finish that movie, right? She wanted to finish the, the Frida Kahlo movie, uh, Kahlo movie. So wasn't she wrong? Uh, let me give you this section from Opar. And, and let me give you a shorthand first, because this, this is how I always have thought about this issue. When you think about honesty, what you need to think about is, are you trying to fake reality in order to gain a value in some way? Or are you doing the equivalent of self-defense? Let me read the section to, um, to kind of clarify on this. The principle of honesty, writes Leonard Peikoff in the objectivist view, is not a divine commandment or a categorical imperative. It does not state that lying is wrong, quote, in itself, and thus under all circumstances, even when a kidnapper asks where one's child is sleeping, the Kantians do interpret honesty in this way. But one may not infer that honesty is therefore, quote, situational, and that every lie must be judged, quote, on its own merits without reference to principle. This kind of alternative, which we hear everywhere, is false. It is another case of intrinsicism versus subjectivism preempting the philosophical field. Okay, so he's saying, on the one hand, it's not some sort of categorical imperative like the Kantian style. And this is the classic example that you hear in intro philosophy. Kant apparently held that if some axe murderer comes to your door and you're, say, babysitting three kids or something. Say, you know, you're babysitting, there's three kids, axe murderer comes to the door and says, where are the children? You're supposed to say second door on the left. Why? Because you have to be honest in all circumstances. They asked you a direct question, you give a direct answer. That would be the Kantian view. Uh, we reject that. We also reject, in, if, you know, again, if you adhere to Rand's philosophy, as, as I do, we also reject the idea of, oh, you just weigh what the potential benefits and harms are in each situation. You can't just say, oh, you know, honesty is situational. So then the question is, what in the world do we mean? And how in the world could I say that uh, Salma Hayek was honest, that she was consistent with the virtue of honesty 
by not talking about Harvey Weinstein all these years. How could that be? Let me continue reading from uh, Leonard's book. He says, lying is absolutely wrong under certain conditions. It is wrong when a man does it in the attempt to obtain a value. But to take a different kind of case, lying to protect one's values from criminals is not wrong. If and when a man's honesty becomes a weapon that kidnappers or other wielders of force can use to harm him, then the normal context is reversed. His virtue would then become a means serving the ends of evil. In such a case, the victim has not only the right, but also the obligation to lie and to do it proudly. The man who tells a lie in this context is not endorsing any anti-reality principle. On the contrary, he is now the representative of the good and the true. The kidnapper is the one at war with reality, with the requirements of man's life. Morally, the con man and the lying child protector are opposites. The difference is the same as that between murder and self-defense. And he says, there are men other than criminals or dictators to whom it is moral to lie. For example, lying is necessary and proper in certain cases to protect one's privacy from snoopers. An analysis covering such detail belongs, however, in a treatise on ethics. The thing you always ask yourself in this kind of scenario is, are you lying in order to obtain a value? Right? Are you trying to do it in order to obtain a value or are you having to tell something that is literally a lie in self-defense because someone is unjustly attacking you or unjustly trying to invade your privacy? It is important to be ruthlessly clear, you know, that you're in one of those situations, that you're not, you know, trying to obtain a value. So you have to think through a situation like this carefully at certain times, though. But let's go, to, you know, back to Hayek here, right? Weinstein was a monster. You know, again, read her story, uh, you know, particularly when the, this Frida Kahlo movie, the way he treated her is, is really what stood out. She wasn't going to do the movie with him at first. And then some, I can't remember exactly because it's been days since I read it, but then she brings it back over to him. And then he's trying to kill the movie because, you know, she doesn't want to have sex with him is probably the way I interpret it. Um, he's trying to kill it. And he puts in front of her like this list of five demands, just business type demands, you know, go rewrite the script and do this and blah, blah, right? Um, and he doesn't think she's going to be, oh, you like, she has to get A-list actors and the, this and the blah, blah. She does all of it. She meets his five outrageous demands and gets to the stage of starting this production. And then he comes in and demands the sex scene, okay? So a defrauder. He has violated her rights, and if she wants this movie to go on by telling a few little lies, this is not her being dishonest. She is defending herself against his attack on her values. He is the monster. He is the one who has initiated force against her. If she's going to go to court to do this, um, you know, to try to, to fight him on this. It's horribly embarrassing and everything else. It reveals all sorts of private stuff. And she'd have to go through the whole history of, you know, and why didn't she talk about it in the past when it was just harassment and she was dancing around it and stuff. Um, in order for this movie to continue to be made, 
she had to just, you know, say whatever she had to say to get it done. So you say, okay, well, she was dishonest. She was not dishonest. Um, she was practicing the virtue within the context. And, she, you know, if, again, as long as she in her mind knows exactly what she's doing, it's like, yeah, I'm having to tell this production assistant that the reason I'm vomiting is because I got food poisoning or whatever versus Harvey Weinstein was forcing me to do this sex scene with another woman because he is a lewd monster. Um, if that's what she has to say in order to get through, that's what she has to say. And, you know, I had to learn some of this the hard way. I had an experience in my life where um, out of, I guess, conscientiousness or whatever, I once told somebody something that I really didn't have to tell the person that was a true thing. Um, the person was actually kind of invading my privacy and I wasn't really clear on the fact that this person didn't have a right to know whatever it was. And I had reason also to think that that person would use anything that I said against me, but I wasn't really clear in my thinking about it at the time. So out of conscientiousness, I tell this person the truth and I suffered for it for months. This person used that against me. Um, so, you know, when somebody is somebody that you know is going to use the truth that you give them as a weapon against you in a way that is unjust. And this is a person who is, um, you know, already behaving improperly. No, you, you don't owe that person the truth. You don't. Um, so, but the, but the problem is, of course, that you have to be very clear when you're in that kind of situation. And I would say for Hayek, it's like, this is a super clear situation. I can't even believe that in this situation, somebody could read this account of hers and say, oh, yeah, but, you know, she was dishonest all those years. Look at the horrible things that this bastard did to her. And you're going to say, oh, well, you know, she should have told the truth about what he did with all the different pressure. And like I said, you know, going through and satisfying those five outrageous demands and getting the job done. She had thought, okay, he'd be impressed, you know, that she jumped through all those hoops and got everything done and he would finally leave her alone. And he didn't. The bastard comes back and demands that scene from her and everything else. So kudos to her. Um, and like I said, yeah, express your emotion as well. It's, it's, it's authentic. No comments, no questions in the chat room. Yeah. So that's, that's the, the take on honesty. As I said, the, it, it's not treated as a categorical imperative. Every single thing that comes out of your mouth ever in your entire life must be literally true. Otherwise you're dishonest. On the other hand, it's not what you would call a utilitarian balancing of benefits and harms that would come out of this. It is an application of a principle within the context, and that context is that others are treating you justly and appropriately and not violating your rights. Um, if somebody is a, a rights violator, you, you don't owe them. You know, it's like... Uh, some woman she's accosted in an alley or whatever and she's got a handgun on her somewhere it's like where's your gun yeah you're going to tell the guy because he's going to use it against you no ridiculous um so that that's honesty and that's also just in going through this story um, you know kudos to her for for telling it and telling it so powerfully it's a reminder of you know this is the baby 
don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. At the same time, some of that bathwater, you know, the idea of bringing up a case against Kaczynski, it's murky stuff, and and that needs to go. Uh, selfishness says, sounds like the destruction of a culture on a microscopic level. Now, which sounds like the destruction of a culture on a microscopic level? Maybe be clear about the comment. If people do want to talk about any of these things, again, the number is 760-888-5817. I've got only a few more minutes left, but I see a couple people on the line. If you wanted to make a quick comment, then just press 1. But otherwise, I'm going to plow on and get through. I've just got a couple of notes left. I said the main things that I wanted to talk about today. Uh, So, yeah, no surprise. We bought weapons for Syrian rebels, and some of those wound up in the hands of ISIS terrorists. So reveals a report that was published in USA Today this week. Someone had told me, oh, well, we've captured some of those back because you know, Donald Trump has done such a good job going after ISIS and the blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's fine. But A, we have spent tax dollars on both. So it's like we're spending tax dollars digging a hole and then filling it again. But it's worse because our soldiers' lives are at risk and our lives are at risk. So that's not great. And moreover, you'd say, okay, well, so Trump is doing better than his predecessors. Trump has still voiced approval of the type of policies that got us in this trouble in the first place, namely having coalitions and arming people who are parts of our coalitions and, you know, things like that. You might say, okay, well, he's going to do a better job choosing those people that we arm. And, are, are, you know, is he still arming some of these people? Is he still helping some of these people? Maybe. I don't know. What I do know is he has still talked about forming coalitions in the Middle East with these people that you can't really trust. And plus, it's just volatile. Even if you have a particular actor that you think you can trust, maybe the weapons are still going to wind up in the hands of our enemies. So, um, yeah, your tax dollars at work against you. And like I said, it's, it's in a way that is more overt than usual. Good news this week. FCC has repealed net neutrality rules. I give you a link to the New York Times article about it. And, of course, they come in, they say, well, it's right along party lines, 3-2 on the FCC. Of course it is. And when they passed net neutrality, it was right along party lines. So, you know, New York Times in their convenient memory. I When I posted this and I say, okay, well, here at least is some good news, I'll defer, you know, Yaron Brook has spoken a lot about net neutrality, and as I understand also, Sonny Lohman did a an informative podcast about net neutrality, so you can get in the weeds a little bit more. But some people came on my thread and they said, um, government has given monopolies to, say, cable companies and stuff in certain areas to be the Internet service provider of choice in those areas. And so shouldn't we, in effect, instead of advocating for the repeal of net neutrality, we should wait until they get rid of those monopolies and and stuff like that. And here's my answer. First of all, net neutrality is, what, two years ago? So all we're doing is we're advocating for the repeal of additional government controls in an area where there were already too many controls. So... um, it's not like we're saying, oh, you know, uh, there, there's something that's been entrenched for a really long time, like Social Security, for example. You know, let's just completely wipe out the whole Social Security system tomorrow. No, we're not. 
this is not that sort of situation. This is, it's only been since 2015. What we're doing is we are peeling back layers of the onion. We're going against the trend of the controls breed further controls. So there's that. The other thing is, if you allow this additional set of controls to exist, you have, in effect, government controlling traffic on the Internet, government controlling what the access is. You say, okay, well, it's about neutrality. The, you know, the rules say that they're neutral. They're going to be neutral as to all traffic and all content on the Internet. Government is not neutral about anything. It gives government control over this. And I give you a link to Orwell's 1984. It was the next step toward 1984. This is content on the Internet. So let's talk about in other areas being slow to advocate the repeal of controls. Maybe you want to be slower in medicine. But when you talk about the spread of ideas on the Internet, you want as few controls as possible, as fast as possible. So this is unadulterated good news. Uh, finally, in the program notes I have for you guys, I have to go in a few seconds here. I've got another selection from St. Vincent. She went on Jimmy Fallon's show and did this great song called Slow Disco. It's, it's just her singing with strings and everything. There's some songs of hers that are you know, a little too out there for me, but there's so much that is so good. So enjoy that. And you guys, I will talk to you next Wednesday. I'll be back. Wednesday, unless something really bad happens to my dog or something. I'll keep you posted, but I'm planning on next Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 Pacific. As I said again, thanks for tuning in on this off day, the Friday, and I'll talk to you next week.